Revolt Black News, presented by State Farm. This week in Revolt Black News, we look at justice and accountability, because the two actually yield completely different results. Now, yeah, this week one got awful apple was picked, and that is accountability. But the day that the whole rotten orchard goes down and we rise up in our full prosperity, that will be justice. And y'all know we're a long way from that because anytime we get even a glimpse, it is quickly obstructed by that rotten orchard. And we know that that makes for some damn strange fruit. So listen, of course we want justice. But what we deeply yearn for is to be out of the entire debt system of injustice. Y'all, it's simple. Murderers should go to jail and black people should be able to live life. Now, some people call that justice. I call it common sense. Welcome to Revolt Black News. I'm your host, Ebony K. Williams. Now, y'all know it's been a heavy week with verdicts in around the case of Derek Chauvin. He was found guilty on two counts of murder and one count of manslaughter. Now, while there's a whole lot of work to be done still by in the black community, we do need to break down exactly what went down in this case. Because here, a Minnesota police officer was not only charged, but actually convicted of the killing of a black man in America. So here to help me out, of course, Floyd attorney, friend of the show, Chris Stewart, as well as Justin Miller. Thank you both guys. Chris, I'll start with you. Uh, when you were last on the show, giving uh, pretty much a preview and deep dive of this case, you called it, brother. You said that absolutely Derek Chauvin would be found guilty on all counts. Uh, some of us, even in the legal community, weren't sure. Chris, how'd you know? Faith. That's pretty much it. I mean, we were nervous, but you know, the one thing with all the stuff Justin and I have to deal with is you can't lose faith. And that's the one thing that I, you know, I fear a lot, especially with the black community, is we lose faith and hope a lot. Um, and we just kind of accept, oh, that's how life is. No, nah, man, just keep the faith, even if it seems impossible. Um, because the way that you break a human down is to take away their faith and their hope. Um, and then they're lost. Then you resort to whatever you got to resort to. You cannot lose faith or hope, no matter how bad it looks. Absolutely. Uh, now, Justin, I want to talk to you about the dehumanization of Brother George Floyd. Now, we saw it when he was tragically killed uh, with that knee on his neck. And then we, of course, saw it again in the courtroom, uh, the way in which the defense arguments were all about making George Floyd's death George Floyd's fault, uh, blaming it on certain behaviors um, and just really painting him as a typical angry black man. Can you speak to uh, that and also the way that the prosecution had to work to counter those arguments by humanizing George Floyd in their case? Yeah, well, this all started in the beginning when Chris and I were trying to make sure everybody understood that this was not the George Floyd trial. This was the Derek Chauvin trial. Mm. And we said that time and time again, just to make sure that everybody understood George Floyd is not on trial. So so mm -hmm. when the when the uh, attack started happening and, and the character assassination started happening, we had already told the family what was going to happen. Uh, they didn't really have um, and they being the defense didn't have a great case. Just because everybody saw what happened, nine minutes and 29 seconds of murder on, on, on television. So they had to uh, go to the character assassination route. And, and this is the route they go to anytime. So in a situation like this, we knew it was coming. So we prepared the family and then we thought the prosecution did a really good job, especially when they brought up his brother Felonis and he talked about the things they used to do when they were mm -hmm. kids. 
you know, they, they spoke about Gianna, his daughter, who we represent. Um, and, and those things kind of let people know that George Floyd isn't just his criminal record or what happened to him in the street. He's a real person and people love him. And that's so important. Um, Y'all know that as, as esteemed attorneys. Personally, I felt really uh, that it was missing when we go all the way back to 2013 and think about the trial of George Zimmerman. I thought that the prosecutors in that case did a, a, a piss poor job of humanizing a young, vibrant Trayvon Martin. You know, Trayvon was lost um, in that case. And I think that's why that verdict, uh, in, in some part at least, looked the way it looked. Uh, Chris, I want to ask you about Derek Shaw's decision to not testify, to invoke his Fifth Amendment. Uh, now, while, of course, we know uh, the law tells you not to interpret that as an admission of guilt, and the judge gave that instruction, do you think it impacted the jury's perception of uh, Derek Chauvin, and what do you make of it? Yeah, I think it did, because, I mean, I thought he was going to testify because he was taking notes on every mm. single word said. I've never seen a human write that many notes in my life. So I was like, wow, this dude is going to be on the mm -hmm. stand, know everything that's ever been said, and any what were the notes for? I mean, he didn't even testify. So I think it had an mm -hmm. effect because, you know, if you remember Walter Scott, Michael Slaker testified. That cop testified to, you know, try and defend right. his actions, and it worked. Um, so I thought he was. Mm -hmm. I was shocked that he didn't. Um, I was shocked at how short their defense was. What, two witnesses? Well, real witnesses and... You know, but I, I mean, there was nothing you could say when you're caught on tape. And let me ask you about appeals. Uh, some folks are, frankly, nervous, concerned that these convictions, which uh, at least feel like some level of accountability, might be overturned on appeal. Particularly, they're concerned that the defense will argue uh, impartial jury because the judge refused to uh, grant that change of venue early on and just the publicity of the case. I, I mean, I'm not concerned about it at all. <clears throat> In every single case like this, you're going to get appeals. And, um, you know, folks need to understand that that's just part of the process, right? Somebody gets convicted and they're mm -hmm. going to jail for a bunch of years, they're going to appeal because they don't want to go sit down. But I don't think any of these mm -hmm. appeals are going to work, um, especially the last one regarding the words by uh, Congresswoman Maxine Waters, uh, Representative Waters, what she said, she within her rights to say. And so I don't think that that's going to be enough. The jury, to get in, getting an impartial jury, it's going to be hard anywhere when you have a video that the entire world has watched. You could try that case in Minnesota or you could try that case in Miami and you will still, still get the same result. Right. So we don't think that an appeal is going to be something we really need to be worried about too much. Biden's Department of Justice, uh, ran now, of course, by Merrick Garland, is going to open an investigation to the Minneapolis Police Department. Chris, what can we expect to come of that kind of uh, patterns and practices investigation and could it lead to uh, improved, uh, an improved state, improved police state? I mean, I was impressed. Uh, I, you know, I hadn't figured out Biden's stance on policing and what he was going to do yet. But when I saw that, which is why I liked Garland, you know, when 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 he put the name up, I was like, okay, you know, you know, he actually fights. You know, because when when Trump got elected, he took away all the consent degrees. Yeah. Um, and so <clears throat> mm -hmm. he took away all the investigations that were going on or department reforms. Um, and so that was a good sign because maybe they're about to reinstitute all of the consent decrees and, and, and reforms. So that's a huge step because when a department knows that they have federal oversight, you act right. Mm. I mean, you know, you've got to act right. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, yeah. you know, like, like they always say, when the feds own you, you know, so it's serious. Um, so that was a big sign, big sign. Yeah. You can say that one more time. I still, I feel like I keep saying it, guys. 
And, um, you know, there's even some, some folks right now in the kind of pop culture spaces in which I exist now that are, uh, you know, facing federal charges. When the feds come for you, um, they probably already have a lineup of corroborating witnesses um, who've already testified against you uh, in previews, and they are willing to do it again. So, uh, yeah, you better have some act right when the feds are involved. I totally agree, Brother Chris. Uh, Chris, also, I want to talk about sentencing. Uh, we know there's going to be about an eight-week delay here as to when we will see what that sentence looks like for Derek Chauvin, now convicted murderer. Talk about the sentencing guidelines. What can people uh, really expect to see uh, by way of what kind of time this man will get for the murder of George Floyd? Uh, his max that he could get is 40, but you know there will be some reductions for the first felony. We aren't really allowed to comment on the sentencing part because as you've seen, this judge okay. is very <clears throat> aware of uh, parties related to the case commenting. And so mm -hmm. the only thing we will say, uh, I think Justin said it yesterday, is that we want him to get the maximum amount of time possible. And we'll stop there. All right, Chris, Justin, uh, you're breaking down extremely important information. It's so much. We actually got to pick this back up a little later in the show. Listen, we appreciate y'all sticking around. But up next, we've got this week's headline. we got more Revolt Black News after this. Welcome back to Revolt Black News. Here are this week's headlines. Now, following the verdict and the trial of Derek Chauvin, President Joe Biden delivered an address to the nation as this being a path towards justice. Let's take a look. Let's also be clear that such a verdict is also much too rare. For so many people, it seems like it took a unique and extraordinary convergence of factors in order to deliver real change and reform we can and we must do more to reduce the likelihood that tragedies like this will ever happen and occur again. We have to listen. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Vice President Kamala Harris also took time to speak on the matter. Let's watch. Here's the truth about racial injustice. It is not just a black America problem or a people of color problem. It is a problem for every American. We are all a part of George Floyd's legacy. And our job now is to honor it and to honor him. And President Biden also gave the Floyd family attorney, Benjamin Crump, a personal call to express his satisfaction with the verdict. Let's take a look. It's feeling better now. Nothing. It's going to make it all better, but at least God, now there's some justice. Right. Hopefully this is the momentum for the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act to get passed to have you signed. we got to have that and a lot more. I keep thinking of our words. Daddy could have changed the world. No, yeah. changed the world. Thank God. Well, you got a shot to make change the world. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and Minnesota is under an even more watchful eye as U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland has announced the Department of Justice will launch an investigation into its police department to determine if it's engaged in a pattern or practice of unconstitutional, unlawful policing. Now, Garland said that he wanted to wait until after the Chauvin verdict 
in hopes of not influencing the jury's decision. And sadly, the tragedies just continue. A Columbus, Ohio police officer fatally shot a 16-year-old black teen named Makia Bryant. Four officers were called to a domestic disturbance where body camera footage seems to show that the teenage girl and two others were in an armed altercation. The officer that shot Bryant has been identified as Nicholas Reardon. And following the fatal shooting of Makia Bryant, Interim Police Chief Michael Woods spoke on the incident. Let's take a look. I'm a father. Her family is grieving. Regardless of the circumstances associated with this, a 16-year-old girl lost her life yesterday. I sure as hell wish it had happened. And we are still gathering information that we can gather, but most of that information will be done by BCI. They're doing the investigation. We want to ensure that independent review from them and we stay out of their way and provide the information that they request from us. Columbus Mayor Andrew Geithner also gave an update on the shooting, calling it a horrible, heartbreaking situation. Let's watch. Not just the mayor, the father. The city of Columbus lost a 15-year-old girl today. We know based on this footage, the officer took action to protect another young girl in our community. And in other news, Mark McCloskey, remember him, the lawyer from St. Louis, who we saw last summer wielding his gun at Black Lives Matter's protesters? Well, he's apparently considering a run for the U.S. Senate. McCloskey is eyeing a seat currently occupied by GOP Missouri Senator Roy Blunt. Blunt said that he will not run for re-election in 2022 and plans to retire. And in much needed positive news, the mayor of Birmingham, Alabama, gave a blanket pardon to anyone convicted of a misdemeanor marijuana charge over the last three decades. Mayor Woodfin said this, instead of asking the people to come to me for help, we decided to take it to the people. The initiative has impacted over 15,000 possession cases. And lastly, in more good news, President Biden announced that he expects to meet his goal of administering 200 million shots in 100 days. And the president is also offering a paid leave tax credit that will offset costs of employers with fewer than 500 employees for any paid time off that their employees need to get the COVID-19 vaccine or recover from the vaccination. The president himself spoke on the matter. Let's watch. Today, we hit 200 million shots. But if we let up now and stop being vigilant, this virus will erase the progress we've already achieved. We all need to mask up until the number of cases goes down. Vaccines can save your own life, but they can also save your grandmother's life, your, you know, your co-worker's life, the grocery store clerk, or the delivery person, helping you and your neighbors get through the crisis. All right, now that's it for this week's headlines. But up next, Rochelle Ritchie interviews this country's top medical expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, on all things COVID-19 and this vaccine. So much to break down, and of course, Rochelle's got us covered as usual. So stick around for more Revolt Black News after this.
What's going on, everybody? It's Rochelle Ritchie back on Revolt Black News, and I'm here to lead an important conversation on the state of the COVID-19 vaccine. I'm so excited to have the director of the U.S. National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, Dr. Anthony Fauci, join me to discuss some recent and important changes regarding distribution of the vaccine and how soon before we achieve herd immunity. Dr. Fauci, thank you so much for joining us here on Revolt Black News. We've seen a lot of skepticism when it comes to the vaccine, when it comes to COVID-19, uh, especially when we think about how quickly the vaccine was produced. I want you to, if you, you, know, you can, if you can just give us very briefly why people should not be concerned about how quickly the vaccine was developed. Well, that is a great question and that is the key question. And in fact, I have recently explained that in an article I wrote last week in Science Magazine. And what it means is that this speed is not a reflection of carelessness or of cutting corners. It's a reflection of decades of investment in basic and clinical research, which led up to the capability of doing something in 11 months that 10 years ago would have taken several years. It's merely a reflection of how much has been accomplished scientifically. So we had the virus in January. We started the clinical trials because we had a very good vaccine platform technology. We had a lot of infections in the community and we were able to show very quickly that it was very safe and very effective, quite effective. And the thing that people need to understand is that that determination is made by independent bodies of people who don't have any allegiance to an administration or to a pharmaceutical company. The determination of it being safe and effective is made by what's called a data and safety monitoring board. Independent group of people of multiple disciplines, virology, immunology, clinical trials, ethicists, statistician, they don't have any allegiance to anyone but the general public. They've made a determination that the vaccine is safe and effective. And the actual approval of it by the FDA to be given to people is done by the career scientists and it's done in association with their advisory committee, which yet again is an independent group of people and their deliberations are public. Anybody could come in and listen to it. So it's not anything behind closed doors. And I think when people fully realize that the entire process is transparent and independent, that they may just rethink about the idea of their hesitancy because it's all laid out there for people to see. Thank you so much for clearing that up because I know that is something that you and I myself have heard uh, quite a bit when it comes to people being skeptical about getting the vaccine and particularly in the black community, as we know, historically, there's been some distrust uh, of the medical, the medical system and organizations. And now we've seen the pause on Johnson and Johnson. Uh, we've heard that now with Pfizer, you might have to get uh, three doses of, of the vaccine. How does the medical community um, address those, those skeptics and those criticisms and ensure that people are making sound and, and, and uh, decisions based on their knowledge and not, and not fear? 
Right. And, and we, you know, we trust the American people are smart. <laughs> we trust mm -hmm. them to make their own individual decisions. So long as they have the data, the real open, transparent evidence. So what you do is you make all of that available and try and explain it in a way that people can understand what you're talking about. So let's take an issue. You mentioned two things that happened. Let's explain them. The fact that the J&J &J was put on pause, rather than being of concern, that should convince people that we take safety very, very seriously. Because the thing that triggered the pause for the J&J &J was six women out of seven million who actually had an adverse event. So you're talking about one in a million. If they find a few more, it'll be one in whatever. But the chances of getting that is about less than the chances of getting hit by lightning. So you've got to put things into perspective for people. So rather than say, well, they paused it for safety, you can look at the other side of the coin and say, wow, they paused it for such a rare, rare event they must really be taking safety very seriously. The idea about needing another boost, there's nothing wrong with that because you wanna make sure when you get vaccinated, you get a certain level of immunity and it stays up for a while. And what Pfizer said that they're watching it carefully and they wanna make sure that if it starts going down the level of protection, you come in with a boost to get it back up to the protective area. To me, that's a good thing. So what it's saying is that we're following it closely and we don't know whether protection is going to be for a year, a year and a half, two years, but let's assume that you do need a boost. No problem. We'll get a boost for you, very similar to what we do every year with influenza. Now, my last question for you, Dr. Fauci, is if it does take six months to two years for someone to be fully vaccinated, for the vaccine to take uh, effect. Do you think that we are going to be in a situation where we are going to have to continue to wear masks and social distance for the next two years, possibly? Okay, I might respectfully correct something for you. It doesn't okay. take six months to a year to be fully effective. It's okay. fully effective 14 days after the second dose. And then okay. it's effective. You're talking about how long it could be effective not when it okay. becomes effective. I okay. thank you for bringing that up because <laughs> the fact that you said that means that other people may hear mm -hmm. that. Yeah. You don't need a boost the third time to be effective. You're effective within days, a couple of weeks of your second dose. So then the, the real question is, how long are you within that protected zone? And it may be after six months to a year, we need to give you a boost to be able to keep that protection up, not to get to it. You're already there way, way long ago. I see. Okay. And I'm glad you cleared that up because like you said, sometimes other people will be thinking the same thing. So thank you for that. But do you think that we're going to be in a situation where we're wearing masks for the next year to two no, years? I, I think if we, I mean, that's the reason why you hear myself and my colleagues practically pre pleading with people to get vaccinated. Because if you get the overwhelming majority of the population vaccinated, 
and you get the level of infection very, very low, the virus is not a threat. It may be there at a very, very low level, but it's not a threat. When we get there, we won't be wearing masks. We'll be going to the ball games. We'll be going into restaurants. We're going to be going to travel. We're going to be doing all the things that we wanted to do over the past year, but where we couldn't do it. So the best way to get back to normal is get vaccinated so that we have protection over the whole community. Dr. Fauci, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us and share this very important information. More Revolt Black News right after this. to go further. As mothers, as families, we are going to go further. And that's the only way that we're going to push them to do the right thing. Welcome back to Revolt Black News. Now, as promised, we're going to pick things back up with the conversation with the Floyd family attorneys, Justin Miller and Chris Stewart. Typically in the law, there's such a thing as precedent that kind of says as as a one decision goes, it can be uh, instructive, directive to others. Do you think that this particular conviction will have any sort of precedent, maybe not legally binding precedent rather, but maybe persuasive uh, political precedent of some sort? Definitely, definitely. It's going to be huge for police departments all over the country. I mean, if you think about the way police officers have been doing their job for years and years and years in the black community, they didn't have to think about what would happen if they crack somebody's skull or if they kill somebody. Now they have to think about it. Uh, and the municipalities have to think about it too, because you know they're going to lose a bunch of money. Like we got the the highest uh, settlement in the history of these types of cases. Yeah. So you're going to get that million? coming at you. Twenty seven million, exactly. Twenty seven million, and, and you're going to get that. Yeah, you're going to get that. Plus, you're going to go to jail for a long time. So that's going to make them think twice about what they do. It, it should make them think twice. I'll say that. The second thing is the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act um, is something that is going through Congress now and is starting to pick up traction. And we need to make sure that that gets passed because that has a lot 
um, of stuff in it that's going to ban chokeholds and qualified immunity and putting a, a registry together so that these kind of police can't go from one jurisdiction to the next jurisdiction. So this case is huge. Um, and, and, and I want everybody to understand this is like one of the biggest cases. It's not the end of civil rights. It's not the end of police brutality, but it is a start and it's a great start and it'll put us in a good position going forward. Police chiefs, uh, different uh, heads of making those decisions, hiring decisions, overlook uh, previous indications that cops are problematic and dangerous. Um, so what I get action, I'll start with you, Justin, and then Chris, I want yours as well, to people, including people uh, that look like us, that are not supportive of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. I just think they might not be really knowledgeable about what it is and what it's going to do. Because if you think about it, anything that, that starts like um, when we were told to wear masks and you would go to the store and, and, and no one would have a mask on. And as it continued, now you go to the store and every single person has on a mask. It's the same thing with this. You know, the databases may not be used in the beginning, but as you continue and continue, everybody's going to pick it up, pick it up, pick it up. And then we'll have a nationwide database. But you have to start somewhere. So there are things in that in that in that bill that are not going to be immediate, but they're necessary and we need to to make sure and push that they happen. Chris. Yeah, bring me on if anybody ever wants to debate the bill, because it's, it's it. OK, they, that they're not in the trenches because, like, look, I fight these mm -hmm. cases. I've been fighting them for over a decade. There are no databases that monitor these cases. There's no national database when I have a cop that has killed somebody, it takes me three investigators to find where he's worked. There is no public database that monitors these cops. It is, it is not accurate at all. Um, so you cannot track cops that go from department to department to department. They call them shifters. There's like code terms for all that. So yes, a chief may know where he's worked. That's just like any company that knows where somebody's worked, but you don't know, the public doesn't know. And so, you know, there are simple things, you know, in the bill, like stopping racially profiling. Racial profiling is what leads to these killings. Walter Scott was racially profiled. You know, all of these cases are racial profiling. And so if you stop the small things, that will stop all of these incidents that we see. And that's what the bill will end up doing. So, you know, it's one of those situations where, look, everybody wants a Ferrari or whatever it is. But look, there's a Lexus out there or there's a, you know, a very nice car, but you don't have a car. So you're not going to have a car right. until you get a Ferrari. Right. Man, get out of here, man. Get out of here. Yeah. No, no, no I hear you, brother. Some, some people uh, do cut off their nose to spite their face. Um, and, and we know that the enemy of progress can be perfection. Let me ask you this too, Chris. There's a the part of the bill, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe uh, – 252 or something, the part that speaks about elevating the standard of force from uh, intentional rather to reckless. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and what that means for a wider ability to prosecute some officers? Yeah, it's huge because it's like, I tried to explain this one time is you pretty much have to prove somebody, yeah, man, I meant to kill him. That's impossible because the standard is what was going on in a reasonable officer's mind. Now it could just be reckless, almost like when you saw the manslaughter charge in there with George Floyd. That was basically negligence, like it was a negligence charge. And so that's a lot easier to prove in that, all right, we can't prove that Derek Chauvin meant to kill him, but we could prove that it was reckless to leave a knee on somebody's neck for nine minutes. That's a lot easier to prove than, 
oh, he went out there that day like I'm about to kill a black guy. That's impossible to prove. And so, you know, it, it it's a lot easier when they change the standards. Um, and that's the thing, like I said, a lot of people aren't understanding the technicalities unless you've been in these trenches, took some losses, took some wins, and seen how it works. Yeah, I think that I personally think that that change of, uh, you know, uh, use of force standard is, is you can't overstate it. I mean, it's massive. And I think that will make a commitment as well as the qualified immunity piece, which you both spoke to. Uh, let's talk about the politics of it, guys. Uh, it's gotten through the House, uh, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, but uh, facing a time in the Senate, we know it's it's real tight there. Justin, what would you like to see? What, what okay? Let me ask you this: What can we do um, as a community that is engaged on the issue to help get this thing through the U.S. Senate? What what action steps? Right. So we march and we get in the streets and we make sure we show out to let them know how we feel about a certain issue. But I think the thing that we're not so good at is once we've done that and we let people know that we're angry about an issue, we don't focus down to get the details uh, completed so that we can handle it and change that issue. So I think that we need to reach out to our congressmen, to our senators, to our governor and flood them, flood them with letters and flood them with emails and flood them with calls and tell them we want this passed. We don't care if it's perfect, like you said, we just want you to pass something. You can work on it as you go, but pass something, get it out there, get it moving, because we need to start something in order to finish something. And so I think that as a collective group of African-Americans, we and, and, and not just African-Americans, uh, like-minded people in America, we are very good at the protest and the march and the fight, but we gotta get down to the minutia and learn how to take that fight and that energy to a place where we can get change. Okay, up next, Rochelle Ritchie returns to the show to interview Tamika D. Mallory and Torre about police moving forward. We've got much more of Old Black News after this. Black News. It's Rochelle Ritchie, and I'm here to lead an important conversation on the topic of police reform. We know Derek Chauvin was found guilty, so now we want to know how can the institutions of law enforcement ingest this verdict and make tangible changes to their training and policies to stop the brutalization of Black people? Joining me to discuss it all is Revolt fam and activist Tamika Mallory. Also joining is journalist, author, and prolific podcast host Tore. Welcome both of you to the show. Do you think we are any uh, a step closer to seeing any sort of legislation passed that is going to improve the way in, in which Black people are policed in this country? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. And you know, I would say that we have to be closer. Um, this is not really a choice. It's something that uh, America has to do at this point, or else this country is going to erupt in a way that scares me. There was a little bit of relief but also understanding that within two days on today, there was a funeral for Dante Wright, it's heavy. And in between that, knowing that another uh, child was shot and killed, no matter the details, 
still a 15 year old. So long as they believe that taking a black life can always be justified and covered by the police unions and the system in general, we're going to see more unchecked behavior, which is which is will ultimately create an eruption within black America. At some point that has to boil over. And I think that the only way we're going to calm folks a little bit to be able to get themselves together and to be in the right frame of mind is that we start passing legislation quickly that holds people accountable because that's what we saw happen um, to, with with uh, with Derek Chauvin. He was held accountable. Tore, shortly after the verdict came down for Derek Chauvin, you actually put out a tweet. Uh, that I want to read here. You said, quote, even if Chauvin is found guilty, the police violence against black people problem is still unsolved. There's nothing preventing another George Floyd incident from happening tomorrow. Do you have any hope at all that George Floyd's murder will actually have an impact on the way in which black people are policed in this country? Uh, no, I have no hope that this one conviction will change the entire system of how we are policed. The system goes back a few centuries now. It was derived from uh, slave patrols. It is a system where officers are supposed to make arrests. If they don't make arrests, then they haven't they're perceived to have not done their job. They can't get uh, promotions. I think the Chauvin verdict may give people pause for a moment, but let's remember 2020 when you had black and white people and brown people and Asian people in the streets by the millions, coast to coast, cities all over the place, peacefully but aggressively demanding better policing. And what did we see? Police responding with brutality to protests against police brutality. The idea of reform is dead. It's silly, it's ridiculous. And to, to you and the viewers, I would say, how many more George Floyds do you need to see before you understand that we cannot reform this? We need a radical restructuring of the way we do policing in America. Is it one more? Is it five more? Is it 10 more? Whatever number it is, we will get there. There is one more step and that is sentencing. How important Absolutely. is it for people to continue to follow this case all the way through and continue to be vocal um, about this issue and about George Floyd's murder when it comes to sentencing, which is said to happen in about eight weeks. So there's a, there's a few things there. Number one, um, it is my opinion. I'm not speaking on behalf of the family, the attorneys, or anyone directly connected to this case, but it is my opinion that the judge um, uh, will not necessarily be as hard on um, Derek Chauvin as I think that he should. That's my prediction. I believe that the maximum time should be somewhere around 40 years. It could be 40 years. And I don't believe that this judge is going to hand down a 40-year sentence, which is why Mr. Chauvin chose a judge to sentence him rather than the jury, right? So it's so important for folks to keep their eyes on this. Look, I don't think that being convicted of three uh, major felonies in a nationally televised case can possibly lead to uh, some sort of slap on the wrist. He's going to do many, many years in prison. I'm also uncomfortable with the notion that the court will and should respond to anything but 
the evidence and the situation in front of you. I don't believe the court should be responding to the noise outside because quite often if the court is responding to that, usually that's going to be us who are going to be uh, the, the, the beneficiaries or the receivers of the worst end of that. I prefer you know, the prosecutors and the judges who are able to sort of shut out the noise outside and do what's best. Now, I, I would be quite shocked if there's any sort of uh, a sentence that does not keep him in prison for quite a long time. When we look back, though, at Dante Wright and the fact that we have Kim Potter, do you think that the Derek Chauvin verdict is going to put any pressure on her potentially facing charges and one getting convicted or not being charged at all? I've been doing this for so long now, 25 years of my life. I can hear um, the whistles, if you will, where you, you, you kind of hear them making their case. And the fact that they immediately came out with the, you know, she, she mis mistook her gun, her taser for a gun. They are already setting up a case. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure that um, she is going to be held accountable in the ways in which she should. They also, um, you know, quickly several people resigned. Um, and of course, it kind of calmed the protest and all of what we saw in terms of the uprising that was happening around Dante Wright, because they, they knew that she couldn't just go back to work. But now she gets to keep her pension um, and all of the benefits that go along with being an officer for 26 years. So I can't say for sure what will happen. What's the next step? What should we be doing right now? We need to change the system of policing. I, I, I want the viewers to understand that thinking of policing in terms of good apples and bad apples is to misunderstand entirely the system. The police are not here to protect and serve. They're here to generate revenue for the state. This is why they're constantly writing us small tickets. If we diverted some of the billions of dollars that go to big city police departments like New York and LA into things that actually do reduce crime, like uh, combating mental health, like uh, creating job programs for people, um, like improving schools, then we would actually do something about crime. But the police force we have is quite often the source of crime. I mean, like, it, it's no hyperbole. On a day-to-day -day basis, I am far more afraid of the police than I am of the criminals who live in Brooklyn. What we have to be working on, in my um, judgment, and, and we at Until Freedom have been saying this, we have to work on defunding police. No one has ever taught us what other systems look like. In New York City, we have something called the crisis management system. And in communities where the crisis management system exists, violent crime is down. In fact, crisis management um, operators, the violence interrupters, they are often on the scene asking police to step back and allow them to approach people who, again, may have a mental illness, people who have family issues that need to be addressed with jobs, um, with programming. Um, even at hospitals, they go in and they do interventions after a shooting to stop retaliation. We're not talking yet, even though I am an abolitionist and I do believe in a day when we don't need police at all.
But we are not at the point where we're talking about taking police away completely. What we're saying is that it makes no sense that in a place like New York City, the health department and many of the other institutions um, that exist, if you combine their budgets, it is not equaling the same as what police budgets look like, which are in the billions. That has to change. And I think that while we worry about, um, you know, while we, we deal with and stay on top of these individual cases, we must also think about what communities look like with less policing and more community impact. Um, and that's something that I think we have to focus more of our time on. Tamika and Tare, thank you so much for joining me today. We really appreciate your time and obviously all of the incredible work you both do. I'm gonna send it back over to Ebony now. Rochelle, Tamika, Tore, thank you all for an excellent conversation. All right, y'all, now we know that police reform is a key issue to restoring justice for our people. But there's another area I want you to pay attention to that is a part of this larger movement. That is jury duty. See, we've heard the phrase, a jury of our peers not that sexy and it's a bit of legal ease. But here's the thing, as we see, especially in this verdict around the Derek Chauvin trial, serving on juries is essential. It's key, we're always looking to get out of it, but we need to get into it because it can really be detrimental to restoring the justice and peace that we seek for our people when we don't show up. So listen, let's take those jury notices and wear them like badges of honor, just like we did back in November with the I Voted stickers because we want justice and we want peace. Well, one way of increasing the odds of getting there is by representing on juries. So listen, how you register for jury duty, it's different state by state. So do your homework and get to those courthouses, y'all, because we gotta get to work and do the work. For Revolt Black News, I'm Ebony K. Williams. See you next time.